Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. It's a blustery day on planet Earth, and we're going to spend some time today talking about a subject. We have not had this topic on the, on the podcast, Tyler. No, we haven't, and we've been meaning to. We've been meaning to because it's really important. We're going to talk about wind power and uh, along the American shoreline, particularly in the northeast part of the United States. We have a great guide to this subject on the podcast today, Dr. David Bidwell from the University of Rhode Island uh, Department of Marine Affairs. Dr. Bidwell is an environmental sociologist and is the kind of guy who's engaged in uh, the execution. Well, let me just say, we'll ask him during the interview, but involved in studying how these projects are being received and rolled out along the American shoreline. So Dr. Bidwell, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really glad I could join you. Well, uh, Dr. Bidwell, Peter and I really are looking forward to the show. I say this every time, but it's always very true, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, look, we've been, we curate the news every single day. Uh, we are seeing a lot of investment and movement happening, not just in uh, the Northeast part of the American shoreline, but also out West. Um, certainly a lot going on internationally. We read about it all the time. And it was high time that we here at the American Shoreline podcast on ASPN started to, to dive into this a little bit. So we've got a great show today. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical firsthand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make coastal transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Well, D uh, David, welcome to the podcast. Uh, how are things up in Rhode Island today? Uh, surprisingly sunny. <laughs> <laughs> what about the wind? How's the wind blowing up there today? Uh, it's not too windy today, <laughs> but we've had plenty of wind over the past couple of weeks. Well, David, I think what we wanted to do before we dive into the specifics, why don't you give our audience uh, an introduction, if you would, an overview of of your work and how and uh, and what you do and how you got involved in the study 
of wind power up in uh, up in Rhode Island. Sure. Well, first of all, just let me say I'm I'm really glad that you uh, gave a call and asked to talk today. Um, I feel like one of my responsibilities is in letting people know what's what's coming with offshore wind. We find a, a lot of people in the public and people who work on coastal and marine issues are not that aware of, of what's coming. Um, so I, I came to the study of offshore wind because I, I actually, uh, a few years ago, did my, my dissertation um, back in the Midwest and had done some work on uh, public attitudes towards onshore wind energy. And when the position opened up at the University of Rhode Island, they, of course, naturally, it being the ocean state, uh, were more interested in um, ocean renewable energy. And it, uh, it happens that the first uh, offshore wind farm in the United States was at the time that I started at, uh, at the University of Rhode Island, or URI, back in 2014, was it was going through its permitting processes. So I was brought in as a, a social scientist to, to study this. Um, my, my doctorate is in uh, sociology. I consider myself an environmental sociologist. Um, my favorite definition of environmental sociologist, by the way, is that it's what environmental sociologists do. Um, it's a pretty broad field. We can kind of uh, do lots of studies and all consider it to be part of, of the field. Um, but my, my background is mostly in, in something called social psychology, which is trying to understand uh, how individual attitudes are influenced by uh, lots of different factors, including uh, social factors and interacting with other people. And what that means in practice is that I spend a lot of time thinking about um, people's attitudes and behavior uh, on environmental issues. Um, and I first got interested in the wind energy topic because it is sometimes considered to, um, to pit environmental values against each other um, between people who are looking for clean sources of energy uh, versus people who want to preserve the landscape as it is. Um, and so you can end up with some of these conflicting values, even though they're both pro-environmental. So um, for, you know, for me, from an intellectual standpoint, that was what drew me in. But now I feel like I have been completely immersed in this, this topic um, that I started working on a few years ago when it was still very, very early. Uh, and now it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. Well, it's clear, David, that it is expanding and expanding and expanding, and it seems like we are heading toward a real wind revolution on the American shoreline. Um, but it has not always been this way, curiously. Uh, the uh, first offshore wind program that I'm aware of, uh, just doing a little internet research here, uh, was in the early 90s, 91 in Denmark. Uh, so it's relative. It's a relatively new technology. Um, can you fill our audience in a little bit on the history of wind technology, um, how it was adopted and embraced across the pond over in Europe, and uh, what American attitudes were to offshore wind during that same period of time? So. You know, offshore wind really um, 
rolled out of the onshore wind industry in a lot of ways. It was basically taking uh, technology that had been sort of tried and true on land, um, particularly in Europe, and putting it out on a pole in the water um, and uh, and implementing it there. And there's there's a few reasons for doing that. I mean, this is part of a larger energy transition, right? A transition away from fossil fuels, which have several advantages, one being that the, the production of, of fossil fuels are damaging to the environment and to communities, um, that the uh, air quality problems in burning fossil fuels is bad. And then, of course, you, you have the specter of climate change as well, and that's led people to look for different energy sources. Now, moving the wind offshore does a, a couple of things. One, if you think about where uh, where people, at least in the Western world, are developing uh, cities and where the majority of our population lives, it is along the coasts. So you can actually put electricity generation close, what's called close to load, meaning you're producing it near the areas that need it. Um, and a lot of times in those locations, because development is dense, um, you are essentially moving it into an area uh, where there is more space to try to, to develop the, uh, the technology and to produce electricity. And then for some people, um, uh, you know, some people feel that one of the reasons that we've moved energy offshore is because there have been a lot of conflicts with uh, developing renewable energy on land. And the idea being that you can avoid some of those conflicts by moving it offshore. Now, that has not always been the way things have have worked. Um, and certainly a lot of the same concerns that people have for energy development on land or the infrastructure development on land, that applies almost as, as much um, offshore. And then there's some other issues as well that, that come up there. Mm. You know, so let's set the stage a little bit more. I appreciate that overview uh, and why we are moving toward toward offshore. I like this uh, close to load phrase, which is a, the bureaucracy. The language of, of energy production is very interesting. Close to load. The mm -hmm. generation is within miles, a few miles, maybe 10 or 20 miles of where it will be consumed. You know, unlike the Pacific Northwest, where the hydropower systems up in the in the Columbia River move power all the way to Los Angeles, thousands of miles. And that matters in an energy production context because of line losses in transmission are up to 20%. So if you can produce it and consume it uh, close to load, as you said, economic advantage to the, to the power producer. Um, but yeah. let's talk a little bit. Let's set the stage a little bit. And uh, in, in, there's a great, of course, for all of you listeners out there, go to Wikipedia and Google up the list of offshore wind farms and just take a look at the list of facilities that exist around the world. There are a lot of them and they're not in the United States. Uh, the biggest one operating right now is the Hornsea one in off the UK. That's 1,200 megawatts. Uh, there are... Uh, there's only one operating wind farm in the United States, right? That's that's Block Island that you mentioned, and we're going to talk about Block Island. Uh, give us an give us an overview of of Block Island and how it fits into the spectrum of wind power in well, the I'll, world. I'll give you a little more context too of, of history in the the U.S. So you're you're exactly right, which is that some European countries now are getting 
substantial portions of their electricity from offshore wind, uh, places like the United Kingdom, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, um, all have substantial shares of, of their electricity coming from offshore wind. But here in the United States, we haven't really joined in into that um, into that technology or into that world. Um, not and it, it's not for a lack of trying. There was a uh, uh, and and what you'll notice uh, in reference to what we were just talking about, a lot of these places that we talk about are close to Boston, New York, um, areas that have very very dense populations uh, along the coast. So uh, in the early, very early 2000s, the developer actually proposed to do a project um, off the coast of Cape Cod, um, between Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. And a lot of people know the, the, the name Cape Wind. Um, and that still, um, you know, it still casts a shadow over uh, offshore wind industry in the United States because the, the developer came out with a very, very ambitious plan of 130 turbines, and it was met with tremendous opposition within particular groups, um, both on Cape Cod and, and on the islands as well. Go and ahead so and tell us for, who it was. Go ahead and tell us for, who it was. So there were a lot of wealthy landowners uh, in, in those areas, um, as well as, as others. You know, Every time there's sort of a diverse coalition of supporters and, and opposition that crop up, but that project faced more than a decade of lawsuits um, and uh, really strong uh, opposition. And so finally, just a couple of years ago, because they weren't able to meet certain targets for the project, um, they lost the uh, the agreements they had for uh, purchasing the electricity. They finally gave up their, their lease area in the ocean and uh, have have moved on. So in effect, Cape Wind is, is sort of defunct. Well, around that same time when there were all the fights over Cape Wind, there was a, uh, there was a governor um, here in Rhode Island who uh, was very interested in offshore wind and was talking with the de to a developer at the time. And what they decided was that instead of jumping in with this huge project, they were going to start out with a much smaller um, demonstration or pilot project, if you will, and that they were going to take a really different approach to how it works. So that, that was they, Governor Governor Carcieri, Carcieri, Carcieri yeah. back in Rhode Island days. Okay, that's, that, that's exactly right. And so what they did is they actually set up um, through the, the the state the state coastal management agency and working with the University of Rhode Island and the folks at the Coastal Resources Center, what's called an Ocean Special Area Management Plan. And so they brought in lots of different stakeholders to talk about and study the possibility and agreed on a, a renewable energy zone that is three miles off the, the coast of Block Island, um, which is roughly 15 miles off the coast of the, the mainland, and um, decided that they would put in five turbines, uh, five, six megawatt turbines. And so that project actually made it through permitting and and uh, uh, was constructed in 2016. So there are it has a uh, a 30 megawatt capacity. There's five turbines. They are um, interconnected by an undersea cable that runs into the island itself, where there's a, a transfer station 
And then there's another undersea cable that takes the excess electricity, which is most of it, um, back to the main one. Um, and so that's the Block Island wind farm. But, oh, man, did it get people in the industry excited. Um, and the, the phrase that you would hear all the time is they had, quote, steel in the water. And since that point, um, it, you know, you talk about tipping points. And that has really been the tipping point for the industry in the United States, those, those five turbines. And since then, things have been moving so quickly. It's, uh, we, the other people that I know who study this, this field, we just, all we can do is laugh because it's almost impossible even to keep up with the, the level of proposals and activity that are going on in the U.S. Um, at this point. So why, what happened there? What was the tipping point that, that caused this flurry of interest and investment after Block Island uh, went in? As, as you put it, they had steel in the water. Yeah, so I, I think there are a number of factors, okay? So um, on one hand, you definitely have a rising awareness of climate change and the need to, to change our electricity system. And so there's certainly more interest in growing sources of, of renewable energy. And so I think that's on one side. And then I think on the other side, you see this promise of economic development. So the creation of jobs, um, both in putting up wind farms as well as doing the construction on shore – um, and then the, the golden goose in this whole thing is if you can create a big enough pipeline of projects, you can start to think about maybe getting manufacturing uh, in the U.S. as well. Right now, all of the current proposals, the, the wind turbines, the, so the wind turbines at Block Island um, and the wind turbines for all of these projects that are are um, are going to be the 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 quickest to come up, all those turbines are going to come from Europe. Um, and so what you saw, if you, if you want me just to go on a, a little bit about this, is that shortly um, after the Block Island wind farm was completed and, and before it had even been commissioned and, and was making electricity, the state of Massachusetts actually passed a law. Um, so we don't have any federal energy policy in the United States, okay? So the, uh, the, the state of Massachusetts had passed a law in 2016 that actually calls for 1,600 megawatts of electricity sold in the state to uh, come from offshore sources by 2027. And what that does is it, it creates a market, okay? And so then not to be outdone, other states started jumping on the, the bandwagon. So in 2017, Maryland awarded some uh, renewable energy credits for up to uh, 368 megawatts. Then you got new administrations in New Jersey and New York. In 2018, the New Jersey governor signed an executive order for 3,500 megawatts. The New York governor, uh, less than a year after that, called for 9,000 megawatts. Uh, and very recently, the Virginia governor called for 2,500 megawatts. And what makes this possible is that the federal government 
has been supportive of this industry in the way that they can. During the Obama administration, a, a new agency that was that was uh, carved out of, of MMS, which I always forget, Mineral Management Manager, Service. Management Service? Yep. Um, which is called the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Um, Boom. They back like 2013, right? Boehm started leasing large areas of the Outer Continental Shelf along the eastern uh, seaboard for the possibility of renewable energy development. And so what you have are these private developers who have large leases off the coast of the eastern U.S. and governors who are pushing for a lot of, of offshore wind development. And that has really created this this boom town of uh, mentality, a, a request for proposals, and lots and lots of projects being added to the to the pipeline. And uh, very exciting because this is you basically brought us up to where we are now, where there is, as you said earlier, it's almost impossible to keep track of all the developments as they happen day by day up and down the eastern seaboard. There's uh, proposals, I think, down into the Carolinas, if I'm not mistaken. And of yep. course, we're tracking some projects out in the uh, off the West Coast as well, off of California. Mm. And I'm not sure about the Pacific Northwest, but it wouldn't surprise me, uh, although they do have their uh, their hydropower up there. But it also raises the, you know, t t I want to go back to uh, Block Island um, in that it mm -hmm. is it is our one project right now. And I noticed as you were talking uh, through these projects, the number, the megawattage just kept getting bigger and bigger. And we're currently, yeah. we've got a 30 megawatt uh, situation right now. And it's not that far out. I mean, this is rel technologically to me, it seems like this is a, a relatively simple uh, kind of first in project. Is, is that an accurate characterization? Yeah, you know, the, the technology is proven in Europe. Now, the ocean conditions are a little bit different along the Atlantic. We have, we have hurricanes, um, and that makes things a, a little bit different, um, but not substantially. So, um, and the, the technology keeps advancing as well. So while we have six megawatt turbines uh, off the coast of Block Island, now all of the new projects are talking about using eight, 10 megawatt machines. They've been testing 12. They're talking about a 15 megawatt machine. So these are, are really, really big machines. Even the six megawatt machines off Block Island are uh, nearly 600 feet above the water at the, the tip of the blades. So these are, these are pretty big machines. But uh, they are. There's a lot of experience out there, also um, putting these in the water. Yeah, and that's that's. I guess what I'm just trying to uh, point out is that as these numbers get bigger, I mean, Block Island, it's it's relatively close in. It's a fairly uh, small number of actual turbines itself, mm -hmm. and it seems like the trends are for these things to become more numerous. And much more, uh, much larger. And you're completely right. I mean, the size of these things is mind-boggling. If you've been and seen a terrestrial uh, turbine, they're massive. If you see them coming down the road here in Texas, there's a bajillion of them. 
and you, I mean, they've got the wide load thing running. I mean, they're all over the highways here. They're moving these these fan blades. There, it's like seeing. I mean, it's it's like a huge aircraft wing coming down yep. the middle of the road. And th- these th- those are pale in size to in comparison to these offshore yep. machines, as you put it, six hundred feet. Is that what you said? Six hundred yeah. foot tall at the right. at the. Is that at the top of the blade? The top of the blade. Wow. Yeah. See, that's that's epic, Just, man. And that's small now. It's, it's actually taller than the tallest building in Providence, which is our nearest city. So um, that, that gives people some some reference points. So they, they are very, very large. You can so, see them from a, a long way away. Um, and the, the most recent proposal, so... Um, Connecticut just um, signed an agreement for an 804 megawatt uh, project. Um, Virginia is talking about putting in three projects that would total more than 2,600 megawatts. Um, New York's most recent um, projects that they um, that they have uh, taken on or awarded the the contracts for are. Um, you know, 880 megawatts, 816 megawatts. So, so you're talking somewhere in those projects. Each of those projects being in the neighborhood of of uh, uh, 80 to 100 turbines um, by the time they are they are built out. And these projects would all be top largest wind farm offshore wind farms in the world in terms of megawattage, right? I mean, these are all by by, by today's standards. And particularly when you talk here in in New England, um, we talk about them. There being multiple lease areas. I, I believe now there are fifteen uh, leases that Boehm has awarded. There's sort of more that they're talking about, but several of those leases are actually here in New England waters, and they are contiguous. So by the time you you add up the, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, the six, I think it's six or seven leases that are all right next to each other. You're talking about a, a very large space and, and hundreds and hundreds of turbines uh, potentially going into those, those areas. So I think a couple of conclusions can be fairly drawn. At this point in the, in the discussion we're having, David, number one is we're past the experimental stage. Uh, we can look to Europe and see tens of thousands of megawatts of offshore energy generation operating. The technology is built and proven. And we've got a huge incentive set up coming our way along the northeast shoreline of the United States with these governor-mandated executive orders. And I wrote down all of the numbers you gave, but there was a there's this 12 and 13, about 15,000 megawatts of mandated power between Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Virginia, mm-hmm. a lot. And it's- the, a couple of things for the listeners out there. Um, the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management is the federal agency that's going to be leasing land, but uh, Block Island is in state waters, as you said. It and is. was promoted, you know, through the governor's office in their coastal management program. Um, the states will be involved in those federal projects through federal consistency review. And for folks who don't follow that kind of stuff, the states are going to review what the federal leases are. What jumped out at me in terms of the advancement in the industry, and I'd like to just comment on the state of affairs here, 
even though we've only got one project pilot project, uh, the, it, it, it looks like there's a lot of horsepower here. There's a lot of investors, and I can't say uh, go much further without saying the name Orsted and their role as a company on the shoreline. Can you talk about, you know, when is, when is this expected to start to happen? Uh, what about Orsted? What's, what are you saying out there? So, so right now we're in a, a, a slight period of delay, so it's a little hard to say exactly what the timeline are. Our timeline is, but there are uh, there are several projects that people want to get started and, and being developed within the next two, three, four, five years. Um, and what you have seen, and, and this is one of the things that's really interesting in terms of uh, decision making and how decisions are made and how the the public and resource users are responding to this. The Block Island wind farm was developed by what was essentially a small company here in Rhode Island called Deepwater Wind. Now, it was it was owned by a, a New York hedge fund with a lot of big money behind it. Um, these projects take millions and millions and some of the larger ones, billions of dollars to actually produce and build. So we're talking very large money. And what you're seeing now is almost all of these leases – um, so I should mention that Deepwater Wind was purchased actually a few years ago by by Orsted, which was originally Danish oil and natural gas. Okay, and they changed their name recently because they're coming into to new markets. And this is what you see uh, by and large of all of these leases now. They're almost all possessed by large oil and gas companies, large multinational uh, energy companies, because they have the capital um, to do these projects. Now, hey, David, let's, them, let, let me let me yeah. let me jump in just and ask a question there, sure. and to give our listeners a feel for the size and the expense of these leases. And I think you're quite right. We've seen Shell Oil in, in the bidding and awarding of these leases. How much does a federal BOEM lease go for? Can you? Uh, Fill us in a little bit. So th this is one of the really interesting things. So companies, of course, are uh, nervous about uncertainty. So the first few leases that went out, they were going for just a, a couple few million dollars um, when they were leased. The most recent leases, uh, I believe, went for more than $100 million. Um, and so, I think actually some more than $400 million, the total lease sale uh, from Bohm in the Northeast last time exceeded the value of the leases sold in the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas that were kind of contemporaneous right. at that time. So these are these are really big money projects. Um, so, uh, you know, some people talk about, um, you know, I think there are lots of pros and cons to the system as it's set up right now. And. And one of those uh, issues that I think people don't talk about is this this movement. So we're sort of going from big oil to big wind, right? So we have these these very very large companies that are coming in with uh, a lot of resources to bear um, and a lot of experience and a lot at stake as well. Well, David, uh, I suspect that you are uh, very interested in the people part of this. And That's what's right. clear is that big, whether it's big wind or big whatever, uh, there we will be coastal America um, will be 
living with the ramifications of this billions and billions of dollars of, in, of infrastructure that's going to be going in off the coast. And you can imagine, ladies and gentlemen, if you have a, you know, a farm of machinery offshore that is going to need to be uh, up and running 24-7 and uh, need to be serviced, it's going to take a small army, I would imagine, of vessels and support craft and um, water frontage and, and harbors and dredging and, and workers and workers and yeah, humans, um, to make all this happen. And you met, you did mention that there were, there were two kind of precipitating factors here that led to this tipping point action. One was the climate change kind of environmental theme, which I think is uh, really interesting and, and definitely have some questions on that go- going forward. But the other is this workforce, development, uh, job creation, maybe even uh, expanding into U.S. exports if we could get into the manufacturing part of this and compete globally. Um, but how are how are communities? Let's just take Block Island, for example. How how are these how has this economically impacted local communities? How, how have perceptions of the project changed over time? Um, and how how do, how are how are people feeling about this thing now that now that it's, it exists and it's a part of their life yeah so when when people find out that i study what people think about offshore wind their first question to me is well what do people think about it and my uh my frustrating uh answer for them is well it depends <laughs> or uh people think lots of things about this so um there, there are several different ways that you can look at this. You can look at just the, um, the, the public along the shore and, and think about what they think about. And then you can think about specific user groups as well. And in general, in general, people are very supportive of renewable energy and they like the idea of offshore wind energy in general. Um, but they have lots of concerns about specific projects um, as well. So, um, you know, I think on the benefit side, there are a lot of people who look at the, the emissions and green energy and they feel really, they feel really good about that. Um, so some of the survey work that we did here in Block Island, one of the, one of the primary things that, uh, predicted support for the project was whether or not people saw the project as, as symbolic of clean energy. Okay. Um, the other is is jobs and economic development, which I think is uh, important to a lot of communities and to a lot of policymakers um, as well. And and I've found that as well is that people who see uh, offshore wind as being a benefit to socioeconomics, things like jobs and uh, the tax base, those sorts of things, that that also leads to to more support. Um, and, and I would say that one of the things that is happening, one of the things that drives this development are states looking to try to capture some development in communities that frankly have been economically depressed over the, the past decade. So places like like New Bedford, uh, Massachusetts, um, uh, places uh, New London, Connecticut, um, places like that. And so one of the things they do when they sign these agreements with the developers 
is that they also include in these benefits packages for uh, ports redevelopment, uh, jobs training, uh, jobs creation, um, and trying to create that. Of course, right now we have states trying to outcompete each other, and eventually there are going to be winners and losers. Not every port in every state is going to be the one that is successful. I, I have some concerns about boom and bust cycles. Um, you know, when they talk about job creations, there, of course, there are some management and maintenance jobs that go along that will be long term. But most of the jobs around these are temporary construction uh, jobs that, that go along. So um, I, I think communities are going to have to be careful about um, how much money they invite in to begin with and what what happens with that over the long term. But that those are certainly some of the benefits that, that people are thinking about with these. And then, of course, there's a, a, a list of um, things that uh, people are concerned about impacts as well. Wow. That is a lot to unpack, David. And uh, But I think in a, it, from a broad standpoint, some of the stuff that Tyler and I do on the podcast a lot in talking to communities about how we use the shoreline and make economic value out of this space, uh, there's trade-offs all of the time. And in the development of offshore wind, there are some very specific trade-offs that have come up in the discussion up in the Pacific, I mean, in the Northeast part of the United States. And it's the impact of, of, the, of these facilities on the fishing community in particular. This is going to, as you said, these could occupy somewhat of a vast field if all of these areas are developed. Uh, and folks who fish for a living are concerned about uh, how these facilities might interfere with their right to fish or their opportunity to fish. Um, so can you talk about the trade-offs broadly? I've only mentioned the fishery trade-off, but in the economic sectors sure. involved in the discussion, can you paint a picture for our listeners? Yeah. So, so, you know, there are lots of concerns. I think, um, you know, among the general public, there are concerns about ecological impacts, but when you uh, when you talk about, and, and we could get back to those in a minute, but you had asked about economic impacts. And I, I think um, in terms of potential negative impacts, those usually focus around two areas. One is commercial fishing, and the other is tourism and recreation. Um, on the commercial fishing side, um, that's where most of the vocal opposition has been coming from recently, and what has actually been causing delays in in permitting and and all of those things. And, you know, my my personal view is, you know, I, I think offshore wind is probably a good idea. I think it's good to be diversifying our, uh, our energy sources and be looking for green sources. But I also understand the commercial fishing community and the kinds of pressures that that are on them. This is an industry that deals with a lot of uncertainty in terms of markets and weather uh, and ecology. And the offshore wind industry is really creating some some more pressures for them. And in in some areas, these are, can be a substantial amount of development. And so, you know, they're they're worried about the effects on the the fish and ecologically, and whether it's going to um, uh, change the the populations of fish that are out there, and uh, particularly. Um, remember when we're talking about fisheries, it's a pretty diverse group between people who are doing ground fish and uh, uh, other kinds of fish species and shellfish. Uh, 
those are all different industries that use different kinds of gear uh, and fish in different ways. And so they're all trying to navigate this, this new pressure that is there in terms of potential impacts on the fish. And then the other side, which you've been hearing a lot about recently, um, has to do with navigation and navigational safety. So if you have these large swaths of the of the uh, the ocean, whether people are fishing in them or they are uh, simply moving through them to get to other fishing areas, you suddenly have a bunch of sticks coming out of the water um, that didn't used to be there before. And so uh, people are concerned with with what that means. Um, uh, particularly around times when the weather gets rough and maybe you lose some of your ability to navigate or to uh, control your vessel and you have a uh, an ocean now that is that is peppered with turbines. Wow. So you've got an you've got an ocean uh, you've got a fisheries impact question being put on the table and you've got a an, a boater safety or a, a ship safety issue being tossed on the table. Uh, I've got to think Looking at the European experience, there are thousands of wind turbines off of the UK and the Netherlands and Denmark. We don't have to guess how this works out. And has anybody run into one? I mean, there is some empirical information available, um, which I'd like you to comment on that. What is the experience of these concerns that have been raised in the UK? Uh, but the one thing that's bugging me, and I would like you to just get a quick answer to this. If you're standing on the shore of the Rhode Island mainland and you look seaward, can you see Block Island wind farm? Yes. It's 16, it's, you said, about 13 to 15 miles offshore. You can yeah, the turbine themselves, you're, you're talking about, I think, 15 to 16 miles um, off the mainland. So it depends a lot on the, the day, um, whether you can see them or not. So they're, they're relatively small on the horizon. And if there's a haze or there's any fog, which is frequent here, you can't see them, but there are days where they are. You can see them very clearly from from the mainland. Okay, all right. So and that make that then we start to get into some of our recreation impacts too. Right. Yeah. But, okay. So talk about were these types of issues raised in Europe, uh, off of England, UK, Denmark, other areas, Netherlands, where the commercial fishing industry was concerned about the impact on their livelihood? Did that happen, and it, how is that proven out? It. It has been raised there, and there are some there are some different qualities around the the wind farms in Europe in terms of their size and how dispersed they are, um, which is a little bit different. And the fishing industry is a little bit different in Europe as well. And I'm I'm probably not the best person to speak to those kinds of issues, but there is an effort to learn more about what has happened in Europe and to try to understand more of of what those those relationships are. Um, there are also in Europe, there are some countries that actually exclude, uh, as I understand it, that actually exclude access in the, the wind farm areas for fishing. Um, and that's not something that has been discussed here in the U.S. So um, there, there are some, some differences for sure. Well, we'll have to dive back into that one later. I am very interested to learn more about uh, what's going on yeah. across the pond. But I could yeah. tell... Uh, David, that you wanted to uh, tell us about this other kind of externality, kind of hang up that folks are having. And this is coming from the tourism sector, you say, uh, yeah, presumably with regard to the view, the, the, the impact of looking at these things, I assume. 
Well, that that is one. I'm going to stick with fish to begin with. Oh Let's boy, transition okay. into fish. Okay, um, recreational oh, okay. fishing. So Look at us go. Sort of, All right, you get this sort of um, uh, dual worlds between commercial fishing and recreational fishing because the recreational fishing industry has been largely enthusiastic about offshore wind, um, and I, I can speak uh, about Block Island on this. We we're um, Finishing up right now a, a study that was funded by, by Rhode Island Sea Grant where we're trying to understand the experience of recreational fishing at the Block Island wind farm. And what, what we find are a lot of sort of neutral to positive feedback about it. Um, if the turbines are put in an area where there is not actually a lot of structure on the sea bottom, which was true um, for the area off Block Island, they actually work as a kind of artificial reef and and one that actually stretches up through the water column so you get a fair amount of ecological activity around the foundations um, at block island the foundations very quickly became encrusted with mussels um, and which attracted uh, feed fish um, which attracted larger fish and so there are recreational anglers who really make going to the wind farm and fishing right up near the turbines uh, one of their habits now. It's one of their places where they go to fish. The, uh, the, the uh, spear diving community loves them. Um, so what we've seen is a fair amount of support with, you know, with, with some cautions um, from the, the recreational fishing industry. There are concerns about too much boat traffic around them and what that does both to navigational safety and the experience of fishing. If you're, if you're going out to this area because you like to be alone and not around other boats, well, now again, right, you have these big sticks coming out of the water that make it easy for people to, to navigate to and to, to pick a place to, to go fishing. So, um, so that's been, that's been very, very interesting for us is to see how, uh, how anglers are responding to you it. You know, I've heard that artificial reefs can aggregate fish. <laughs> we it never occurred that. to me <laughs> that it would aggregate the fishermen. Yeah, of course. And that would change the fishermen's well, experience course. or, you know, the anglers' experience. I well, very, very much on the Texas coast. The nearshore oil rigs and production platforms along the Gulf of Mexico are very popular. I used to dive on those myself and uh, dive and fish, and you know, and it did. It would be several boats out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and but David, let me sort of let me ask. Um, that, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, they, they hold out hope that new species, um, uh, certain kinds of trophy trophy fish and and uh, game species, will be attracted out there as as the years go on. Well, and maybe as the water's warm as well. Uh, the one of the things I want to know in, in your research at the University of Rhode Island, yeah. and and I, I think you've written extensively about the sociological economic implications of the development of offshore wind in that part of the country. Uh, what ev do you have, what are the studies showing? Is there evidence that the wind turbine uh, development is likely to increase or decrease tourism or increase or decrease recreational fishing? Uh, what's the so, data so show? There's, yeah. been a, there's a lot of concern. You see a lot of this in, in Maryland at Ocean City. It's been a very large concern uh, what's going to be the tourism and recreation impacts? As we all know, 
in the, the coastal world, right? Tourism and recreation dependent communities are very, very common. And so uh, people don't want anything that's going to scare people away from uh, coming to the, the beach and uh, renting houses and, and all of that. So uh, you hear a lot of people who are very nervous about that. Um, what we've found in our research is are, are not um, – I, I always like to say if there's uh, uh, any conclusion is that you can put uh, – you know, Block Island is a very iconic tourism community and you could put five turbines three miles off the coast of an iconic tourism location and it's not a disaster. Um, we have an economist at the university who's shown that actually uh, rentals actually went up on Block Island after the, the wind farm was – what was produced. And it's hard to say that that's exactly the result of the wind farm, but you can say that it, it wasn't a disaster. In uh, research that we've done um, assessing the Block Island project for the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, looking both at tourism and recreation onshore, offshore, and uh, on the island and on the mainland, what we've seen are not a lot of negative impacts. There are certainly some people who do not like to look at the turbines um, and who don't like the way they look and don't like uh, what they have done to what they view as a, a pristine view shed. But, but largely what we hear are neutral to positive impacts where there are people who are really interested in the turbines, who want to see them, who want to interact with them, who want to know more about them. Um, yeah. So – there, there's little indication that that uh, putting up a, a wind farm, at least, you know, I know Block Island is special because it's a small number, but uh, we don't see a lot of evidence right now that it's uh, that it's really problematic for tourism and, and recreation. Uh, fair, fair enough. What 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 the data shows today, though, somewhat limited on the size of the project. Definitely, definitely. That's I mean, we're still we're still. Guys, we are coming into a new, new damn chapter, and we have we're like a paragraph in. That's yeah. all we've got, and so it, this is going to be wild. And I mean, I'm I'm left. I, I kind of want to move into segment three here, uh, David, and talk to you kind of about the kind of the big picture here. This is our first show on this subject. There will be for sure many more. We will be continuing to cover this. On Coastal News Today on and on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Um, but just broadly speaking, why should our audience be paying attention to offshore wind going forward? Why is this important? Yeah, so I, I like to say, and, and sadly, it's, it's pun intended, there's a lot on the horizon, right, um, for offshore wind. And I think being aware of what is coming is important. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when Block Island was constructed, they said, okay, this seems, it's, it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be, but let's start slow. Let's build something that's a little bit bigger and then see how that goes. Build something that's a little bit bigger and see how that goes. But that is not what appears to be happening. Uh, what appears to be happening instead is a, uh, a, a very large flurry of large development. And so I think people really need to be aware of what's happening near their communities in terms of what's planned now. Um, one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in is how we engage 
members of the public and their representatives in decision making about these projects and what what works and what doesn't work. And it's it's very, very tough when you're talking about developing projects in federal waters um, because the the stakeholders get really complicated. You know, where do you do your public meetings? Who do you talk to? Uh, who should be in charge of making decisions? Is it the developer, the state, the federal agencies? Um, so there's there's a lot to pay attention to in the way that things are being developed. And then I, I'm sure you have listeners who are, are outside the the uh, the northeastern United States, and so there are more areas on the the docket as well. And as you move out into deeper waters, and you, you talked about the the Pacific and the Northwest, um, folks out there will know you don't have a really big continental shelf. So mm-hmm. you have to think about things like floating turbines, different kinds of foundations. Um, where we may know even less about what the impacts are. Um, And so I think really uh, paying attention, doing our homework and studying the ecological, economic, and social impacts of this and trying to understand where we're going and and keeping a handle of it are, are, are all very important. 100%. And I think you're quite right that there's a great process question you've asked there, which is, uh, you know, we actually gave a damn about <laughs> about bureaucratic processes and how they work. Uh, so I want to talk about that, but that the public needs to pay attention because of what's coming down the road. And in doing research for the show, just looking at Orsted's portfolio right now, I'm going to just tick off a few. I know you know all of these. But for our listeners, these are the planned projects from Orsted, which is the big investor in Northeast Wind Energy right now. Ocean Wind off of Atlantic City, 1,100 megawatts is number one. Number two, Sunrise Wind off of Massachusetts and Rhode Island, 880 megawatts. Remember, Block Island is 30 megawatts, so that gives you a sense of scale. Revolution Wind off of Rhode Island, 700 megawatts. South Park, no, South Fork, I'm sorry, off of Massachusetts and Rhode Island, another 130. The Skipjack Project off of Delaware, another 120. And we haven't mentioned Vineyard Wind. I I think you're right to say to the public, hey, uh, pay attention right now. Let's look at the processes that are going to be used to evaluate and discuss these investments. And so when you think about that issue of process and what is the best way, how do you engage the public? Uh, as a sociologist and an environmental sociologist, uh, what's your recommendation or best thoughts on how should this process be conducted given the magnitude of, as you said, there's a lot on the horizon? And the, the first point I want to make, too, is with the, the list that you gave is um, it's really important that people – Take a look at a, a map. Um, you can you can Google Boehm offshore wind map and and see what you can find because sometimes it's counterintuitive. Um, so like the the South Fork Wind Farm, which is a, a project for the Long Island Power Administration, I see a lot of newspaper and and TV um, stories coming out of New York that keep talking about that being thirty miles off the coast of New York or thirty miles off the coast of of Montauk on Rhode Island. Well, most people who look at a map would not see 30 miles east of 
of Montauk as being in New York. They would see that as being close to Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Um, and there are several projects where uh, it might be a project for New York or New Jersey, but uh, the location where they're building them is actually – uh, you would probably be identified by the public as being in a very different area. Um, so that's, that's my first uh, sort of caveat on things. So what, what we have found in researching these processes is there's a couple of things that, that make uh, for successful uh, public engagement around these projects. And, and one is for the, the developers and for the regulators to have their formal project uh, processes, a lot of that are dictated by statute and by policy, but that it's also very important that they create informal relationships, um, that they get out and they really talk to people um, and try to understand what their concerns are. Uh, one of the most successful ways that they have done that is through hiring what they call liaisons, and they've done that for both the fishing industry and on Block Island, they did it for the, the community as well, which is actually having someone who is very local, um, who is there, and who can answer questions and uh, take ideas back to the developers um, to create really a, a very personal and, and local relationship. Now, that's going to be a whole lot more difficult uh, when it when it comes to these much larger projects. And this is where I'd really like to see states step up a little bit more in terms of their, uh, their participatory processes and how they're involved in, in getting input uh, into these projects. Uh, they're, they're largely the ones driving the development. I think they need to, to take some more responsibility in terms of coordinating um, the, the engagement um, uh, as well. So I, that's, I, I'd like to see some right. more of that. So I think people can, can get in touch with those folks and say, Hey, you know, do, do more, listen to us and, and, uh, find out what we're thinking. Well, I, I think you mentioned, uh, beginning with the idea of be clear and understand where the facilities are being located, uh, the BOEM website and for the listeners out there, you know, www.boem.gov. There is a document, and you'll get it if you search for offshore energy uh, wind power sites, BOEM, the Outer Continental Shelf Renewable Energy Leases Map Book, which is an incredible resource, very, very detailed uh, maps off of the entire Northeast states. You can really see what's being contemplated here. It's very impressive, a great place to start. Uh, and then your comment, really, I also appreciate very much about the state role here. Through the, uh, the state coastal management programs, uh, which are the federally certified and run programs by the states to, to uh, oversee federal licensing and permitting, these BOEM licenses, these licenses that will be given for these facilities will be reviewed by the state um, through the Coastal Management Program Agency. So this is a great time, folks out there, to get to bone up on your Coastal Management Program in your own state and talk to your Sea Grant people. Uh, like David's organization is affiliated, I think, with Sea Grant. Uh, they, know, they know what's going on, and they can help you through this. This is a big deal. And uh, I really think, David, uh, the work you're doing on 
investigating how the projects are, are being developed, taking a hard look at how the community is reacting to those, looking at the trade-offs, understanding the psychology that goes into these decisions, uh, really important step. Kind of a good follow-up, Tyler, to our Social Coast Forum coverage from a few weeks ago. Well, totally. And, you know, David, not to, not to um, you know, overly state this, but, you know, this, this is a major, to, to, to my mind, and listeners know that I've, you know, I, I've, I've been saying that we are in the post-denial era of, of climate change. And to my mind, this, these projects yeah. kind of are some of our first climate change. Um, I know that they go back way before, the, you know, the, the post-denial period began, uh, and, and I just made this up, folks. So this is not official. But, <laughs> but if, just, you, if you look closely, I think there's something to it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, look, I, I, every day of our lives, Peter, we study what's happening on the American shoreline, broadly speaking, looking at the news that's being reported, talking to people, the voices of the American shoreline from all, all the different sectors, seeing what's happening. And um, I just I find this to be a really significant opening salvo of an American response happening in the Northeast to try to clean up our, our energy situation, which uh, is a root cause of climate change in the admissions. And um, we're going at it. David, you, you put it so well. We are scaling up so damn quickly. Will our Will the public, through our government regulatory bodies, be able to keep this thing in check? Will we be able to adapt and, you know, be quick on our feet? Because this type of scale up, and let's be real, the, the anxiety level is high, ladies and gentlemen. People want answers. They want solutions. And... Um, it seems as though, uh, boy, public public perception and, and uh, the appetite for doing these projects, I think, has gone. I mean, is clearly um, we're moving forward, and we're, it seems like we're moving forward really, really fast. I'm not saying it's a bad thing at all. I actually, I, I agree that it's a good thing. But man, we've got to keep a, a weather eye on how this goes it's going to make a huge impact on the American shoreline. I don't have a question. I'm, ju I'm literally just, th these, these are my thoughts. David, do you, do you, do you want to respond to that? Well, uh, yeah, and I, I think you're right. You know, I think anytime you talk about energy transitions and you think about changing our energy system, I know oftentimes people like to, to simplify these things into, um, you know, either we have offshore wind or we have solar panels, or everybody's going to die from climate change. Um, and so you, you have to either be for one, or, or, or you're either for it or you're against it. And I, I think the question is, there, there's a whole narrative developing around um, what's sometimes called just transitions, um, or even ideas around uh, what's sometimes called energy justice, which is closely aligned with this idea of, of environmental justice. And Anytime you have a large change like this in 
how a, a landscape or a seascape is used or you're, you're transitioning uh, uh, from one technology to the other, there are going to be positive and negative effects. There are going to be winners and losers. And so I think the question is how do we make these kinds of transitions in a way that are um, – that at least reflect the values of the communities that are out there and that are looking way, at ways to either accommodate or mitigate um, potential damages – um, that are being made. And I think this is where um, you start to get some of the importance of these community dialogues. And I, I'm not talking just about community from a geographic standpoint, but also when you're you know, on the ocean, communities look a little bit different. They can be user groups or different economic groups. And how do we think about um, mitigating the potential effects or letting people share in the, the benefits of this kind of, of large infrastructure change. I, I think you're going to have to come back uh, uh, in a few months and tell us how that is developing. Uh, never a dull moment on the American shoreline, a, a geographic part of uh, our continent that is in constant transition. And here's one of the latest, greatest transition forces operating along the American shoreline is offshore wind. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've had the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. David Bidwell from the University of Rhode Island Department of Marine Affairs. He is an environmental sociologist. Uh, it is a complicated topic as wind power bursts open up in the northeast part of the country. But, David, as you pointed out, it's going to be discussed all along the American shoreline. Um, give us some closing thoughts and, and tell our listeners how they can learn more about what you're doing or to stay in closer touch with this particular topic. Yeah, so, you know, I think... Um uh, keeping track of, of what the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is is doing is a great one. If you're if you're really interested, there's a terrific um, there's a terrific organization called the Renewable uh, or called uh, uh, Responsible Ocean Development. Uh, uh, I'm trying to it's RODA, and I'm having a hard time thinking of what the actual acronym means. Um, but it's a it's a group of ocean users and commercial fishermen who are are interested in this as well, um, and you can also always go to the uh, the the website for marine affairs at the University of Rhode Island, or our Coastal Resources Center um, has also uh, put together a uh, website that deals with offshore wind energy and some of the activities that are going on at the University of Rhode Island. And that's that's a good place to start, too. And maybe I can offer up to you all the, uh, the uh, URL for that uh, later. Yes, please send it along. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll include it in another listing of news stories. Uh, on Coastal News Today, for the folks out there, a great way to see what's happened over the last you know, six months is to click on the energy tab on Coastal News today. There's a bunch of stories in there. Of course, it's not just wind; it's also the offshore oil and gas industry. But you and get, it's, it goes about it goes back only about how a far month. Back? Oh, is that, that and all? you know, yeah, because we we, we go through stories. so much news, ladies and gentlemen. We gotta we gotta clean it out. We just run out of space. But uh, yeah, you it it is interesting to go back and and look and. 
I'm just always amazed at how the number of stories, uh, I would say in a week we probably run, yeah. you know, between five to 10, if not more stories, um, depending on what's going on, you know, in the news. But man, it yeah. is blowing up out there. And it is the uh, Responsible Offshore Development Alliance, uh, David Rhoda. Uh, and uh, you can you can Google it up R O D A rotafisheries.org but Responsible Offshore Development Alliance is what that stands for. It looks like a pretty good site. Uh, really great to have you on, David. Um, I think one of the most critical emerging issues on the American shoreline. Uh, we would really like to do more on the topic. If you and your other researchers uh, would be interested in a follow-up discussion, you know, just send us a note. We'll put it on the schedule. I, I think it's that important and a commitment I'm very comfortable making. Uh, let's get our head around offshore wind, the advantages, the disadvantages, the opportunities, and the risks. And uh, this is a good one, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. David Bidwell, thank you very much for being on the American Shoreline Podcast, David. Hey, thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about it.